Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. I just had the pleasure of talking with Jack Chen about his book, The Poetics of Sovereignty, on Emperor Taizong of the Tang Dynasty. That came out in 2010 with the Harvard University Asia Center for the Harvard Yenching Institute. Now, this is a book that's of obvious relevance and interest to anybody who's interested in or works on the history of Chinese literature, the history of poetry, on uh, medieval studies, on medieval China or Tang China in particular. But it's also of very wide relevance to a number of fields because of a a kind of set of major thematic threads that weave through the entire book, but that might not be obvious from the cover or the title or the way the book is categorized. Central to the kind of work that Chen is doing in the book, and, and this will come out in the course of our conversation as you'll hear, are sort of problems around the way we think about and the way the authors that he's talking about, and in particular the figure of Taizong the Sovereign, thought about bodies and corporeality, thought about the relationship of history, broadly speaking, and of the past to literature and literary production. The way uh, Taizong and others and the way we might uh, thought and or think about space, not just the production of space, right? Not just particular kinds of space like parks, um, hunting grounds, the physical body, palaces, built structures, but also ways of moving through space. Um, so roaming and traveling and sort of ways of occupying space, in particular through forms of leisure. So there are a lot of really major threads that are in just about every chapter of this book. Um, that are that that make the book really good to think with, regardless of what you work on. So I highly recommend it. It was great to talk with Jack about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jack. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Jack Chen about his book, The Poetics of Sovereignty, on Emperor Taizong of the Tang Dynasty. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Jack, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Carla, for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So, Jack, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? What what actually motivated your decision, um, if you can kind of recreate that process or um, give a, a kind of interpretation of that process um, mm-hmm. after the fact, the decision to get into medieval Chinese poetry? Well, so I actually, so my background's in comparative literature, um, and my interest has always been uh, some form of humanities. Uh, I, I began actually in English or, or in fields sort of allied to English. I was a literature major at Yale. Uh, literature, the literature major there was created by Paul de Man, um as a way of thinking about not just one national literature, but the literary literature or literariness in general. And I was working in um, English, French, and then I started doing German at that time. Um, 
And so I wanted to to work in in, in a discipline, or I, I was thinking more disciplinarily, I guess, uh, as more of a discipline of literature rather than a particular national literature. Uh, when I got to applying to graduate school, I was thinking about comparative literature, and that's where I ended up. Um, but I started to feel that the kind of work I wanted to do, if I were to stay within, say, European languages, it, it wouldn't. It wasn't as exciting to me. I felt that um, there there had been sort of um, a canon that had been formed, and it was very clear um, that people um, in at least in the period that I was starting graduate school, which was um, probably the waning years of deconstruction, um, and again, a number of my professors and advisors were all within sort of they're all um, within that lineage of uh, Paul de Mon or Jacques Derrida, and uh, that canon was fairly circumscribed. Um, you know, people read the same things. They were talking about Benjamin, they were talking about Baudelaire. And um, I just, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel very exciting or it didn't, I, I couldn't get um, enthusiastic about continuing in that, um, that vein. So um, I thought I was going to do modern Chinese literature, actually. And so when I first got to Michigan, where I began my graduate studies, I was uh, thinking that I was going to work with Itzy Feuerwerker, um, she was doing modern literature at the time. She had retired uh, shortly after I got in there, I think. And then, um, I, but I thought that I needed to actually go back and uh, uh, get the basics of Chinese literature and Chinese philosophy before I really got into the modern period. So I started working with Donald Monroe in Chinese philosophy and then um, Shen Fu Lin in uh, Chinese literature. And I realized that there was a lot of interesting um, things that um, I could I could sort of look at um, and uh, questions that I could examine uh, within the earlier periods. Um, it took me um, probably I, I, when Monroe retired, I, I ended up then at Harvard. And again, it was still in comparative literature. Um, and uh, the disciplinary training I had in literary studies was useful um, to a certain extent because um, I was thinking very broadly in terms of larger questions as opposed to very specific uh, philologically detailed uh, issues. Um, but of course, you need that philology, and, and um, I didn't have it at that point. And so, uh, you know, sort of having gone back from thinking I was going to do modern back to early Chinese, um, early China, working with Monroe and, and Lin. Um, I, I then sort of was just moving my way actually through the literary canon on the China side. Um, and, I, and it mainly happened to be the kinds of classes that Steve Owen was teaching at the time when I was working with him at Harvard. Uh, he was teaching his early Tang through high Tang and then um, his mid and late Tang sequence. And uh, he began with Tang Taizong uh, for his early Tang class. And just, you know, again, as part of that process of just trying to learn the canon for myself, um, I, I thought that there were actually a lot of interesting questions that Taizong raised um, that uh, Steve Owen in his seminar would raise in class, and he wouldn't answer any of them. Um, he would, you know, just ask, you know, why is it that Taizong wrote poetry? Um, and so that, you know, sort of hung over me over the course of that, uh, that first year in graduate school. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, I, I think that was always in the back of my mind, um, you know, sort of working through Harvard and uh, taking classes there. Um, and I had always been interested in political theory um, in sort of uh, looking at uh, how, I guess, um, cultural studies, um, how other disciplines um, and uh, abstractions in other disciplines might inform uh, readings in uh, the literary canon. 
And Taizong just seemed to be a perfect uh, candidate for that. Uh, I originally thought this was going to be a fairly simple project <laughs> and, and uh, Taizong was going to be easy because, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a very large literary corpus. It's like 99 poems. And I thought, oh, that would be easy to do. Um, but, you know, the, the problems of these things, and this is a problem that I, you know, I think I face on a, on a methodological level in the book, um, you know, in each chapter trying to figure out how to arrange everything, um, was that, um, that, as an emperor, Taizong felt that he was trying to recreate or reconstruct, I think, the literary canon. Um, and so, um, no, in fact, you know, I, it became a, it took me probably uh, seven years to just sort of figure out how I was going to do it, you know, from including dissertation time to when I actually was converting dissertation to a book. Um, and um, I, you know, I, probably not the slowest person to, to convert the dissertation to a book, but I, I felt certainly that I was not very efficient about, about going through it. And so anyway, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I mean, it was really this um, idea that, that um, uh, it's not so much Taizong's poetry that interested me, but rather the kind of questions that he posed in terms of um, a, on the discipline of literature, how one thinks about literary canons, um, how one thinks about one's relationship to uh, literature and what literariness is. Um, on the other hand, um, the opportunity to think about how um, uh, some of my other interests within theory um, might be brought to bear uh, upon a, a literary figure like Taizong. Well, this is actually really interesting to hear because um, for anyone who has read the book, they'll know this, but for listeners who haven't especially, I'll mention, the book, uh, although it's on a very focused topic and the literary production, the sort of literariness of a very particular figure, it really does transcend genre. And one of the things that you bring out, or many of the things that you bring out, I think so interestingly in the book and in Taizong's work, work about him, work by him, um, and I'm sure that this is has something to do with your really interesting and broad background and the background you brought to this um, study when it was a dissertation and then a book. So many of these issues speak beyond complet, speak beyond Chinese studies. I mean, I think there's a lot in here for anybody interested in history um, and in the ways that you know, history and a kind of historicity has been used by writers in the past and might be thought about in relation to literature and literary production. And so um, this is just to say, I think it's, it's interesting hearing about your path to this project, because I think there are traces, really, really interesting traces and really fertile traces of that path in the work itself. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's funny, you know, when I was in the process of, I, I can't remember if this was during the dissertation itself or probably when I was trying to convert it, um, you know, I would talk to various um, more established scholars in the field about my interests. And, um, you know, it was hard to see a place for, I mean, I had read a lot of Derrida by this point, um, you know, going through graduate school, I'd been working with Barbara Johnson. Um, and, um, and when I got to Michigan, I was working with Timothy Bhatti. And these are both figures that, you know, have, um, they're both sort of students, direct students of Derrida and Paul Demont. Um, and there, it's really, it was really um, the kinds of things that Derrida did. I didn't really find their way into the book, but I think it's that training in, in um, you know, in, in what, uh, you know, and it's hard. I don't want to say, you know, post-structuralism or to sort of bring it all together as some sort of one kind of conglomerate sort of approach to literary studies, but um, but maybe that sort of more abstractive um, approach to literature, trying to sort of think beyond 
um, the particular text to larger issues. I mean, that, that was very useful for me, um, you know, because it's so easy when you're, when you're working through um, a field that's really been dominated by philological uh, sort of um, approaches to really get very narrow um, and to, and to work through these problems as if they're self-contained. Um, and, you know, I, the more I was reading through Taizong, the more I realized I needed to sort of learn. Um, I, I didn't have that historical um, background. I'd done a few, one history seminar with Peter Bowl when I was there, uh, but that was during the period when he was working really through his um, examination, um, Song Dynasty examination problems um, period. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I, it was I, I, probably part of that time that I spent in trying to think about the book was really spent um, trying to educate myself on early Tang history, um, trying to read through the various accounts in Chinese and English um, and to some extent Japanese um, about, uh, you know, the very complicated um, uh, relationships that, you know, and, it's, and again, you know, the Northern Dynasties and Southern Dynasties is, is a really um, just a very screwy period in terms of trying to understand political history. Um, that, you know, unfortunately is the background that I had to sort of figure out uh, to understand how the Tong came about, um, you know, just to write that first chapter where I felt that I had to set up uh, his biography. Um, and the study sort of emphatically, and, and we'll get to this, and, and you're very clear about this in the book, it's not a historical study of the record of Taizong's reign, right? But it's rather a study of how Taizong represented the acts and deeds of his reign and how his reign and the problems of sovereignty um, that, uh, sort of we, that emerged from his reign were both like articulated through literary and cultural forms and also how he used literary and cultural forms to kind of work out and to articulate his own notion of sovereignty. So I think history here, um, it's, I, I think this is actually a really useful kind of study for historians to read precisely because of the way you treated the historical background in here and because this really brings um, to the fore the... Uh, the sort of importance of history as a literary act and the ways that a kind of historical sensibility can shape uh, literary and cultural production and has shaped literary cultural production in ways that we, that might not be obvious to us. So this really, I think, um, opens up possibilities for how we think historiography, um, specifically and precisely because you're not trying to do just one more history of Taizong, right? Right, yeah, um, and certainly um, I want to make that clear very early on. I'm, I wasn't trained as a historian. Um, I, 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 you know, and I, part of the hesitation I had in, in, I didn't do this actually in the dissertation. I, I sort of avoided all of this. Um, the dissertation was structured somewhat differently, um, that, you know, it was more of a, sort of an intellectual history, early thought sections at the beginning and then moving into Taizong in the second half. Um, and then I realized that, uh, you know, just A, I, I need to actually learn the basic sort of historical facts about Taizong and then B, think about how this, I mean, not treat them as facts um, because again, I didn't want to write a history. Um, I'm not really equipped to do so. Um, and to make clear that um, the main interest here is um, on the level of representationality. Um, but, you know, that, that said, you know, um, you know, then dealing with their representationality then raises a number of different issues as well. Um, you know, and one can treat them and I, and again, um, just uh, in thinking about how, um, how I wanted to make the argument, um, you know, one can think about the representation of, of history um, as an ideological act, um, as one in which um, the uh, sovereign is attempting to sort of put forth the ideal image that's propagandistic. Um, 
But I actually thought it would be more fruitful to think of the representational act um, as constitutive, um, as a, a sort of a way in which the sovereign would imagine himself and be held to it. Um, so, again, sort of, you know, there are, I guess, different you know, moves there. So you move from history as, as some kind of, you know, fact. And, you know, it's not naive history, per se, because we need to have at least the, the basic consensus on what happened. So, um, you know, history is fact, history is representation. And then I want to actually move from representation to a more complicated view of representation, not simply as um, some kind of image that um, is false, but rather um, an image that has in itself, you know, representation as a kind of a truth that, um, at least a truth for Tai Zong and for the people of this period that they would subscribe to and be beholden to. And since you just spoke a little bit to the issue of um, sort of one of the ways that the transformation from dissertation to book happened, rather than belaboring that point, actually, let's sort of continue on in this thread and move directly into the book itself. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so the introduction sets up a lot of the kinds of questions that we've been talking about, um, sort of lays out a lot of the conceptual issues that we'll come to later on. And so what I'll do is sort of move directly into the first chapter, because I think the kinds of issues that come up in the intro are ones that um, either we've raised or that we'll get to in the course of the and particular examples that you give us later in the book. Now, okay. as you mentioned, uh, the first chapter gives us a historical overview of Taizong's reign. And this is important because there are certain kinds of events, and there are key events in the basic narrative of his reign, and of um, specifically the way he came to power, that go on to inform or to be thematized in the writings themselves that we'll look at later on in the book. So this is actually... Um, it, it really nicely, this functions, I think, um, it's kind of surprisingly nicely because you don't have, I don't often see this, at least as a reader, integrated so thoughtfully. This is not just a, let me tell you about the biography of the figure for the sake of getting it out there. This is really a very pointed treatment of there are some ways in which the history of the way um, this person's reign played out actually become crucial to what happens later in the sort of literary um, production that we're going to look at and let me tell you about those particular um, things. So a couple of the things um, I want to just ask you to talk a little bit about because there are two major kinds of events that you introduce here uh, that go on to be really, really important later on. These are the ways that Taizong came to power. So you mentioned here one of the ways he came to power on the one hand, was by deceiving his father, right, into sleeping right. with a woman or women in the <laughs> then king's harem, which is yes. itself really, really interesting. Yes. Um, so that is one of the things that comes to characterize kind of certain aspects of the way he's depicted in historical works. And another one of the major kinds of events that you bring up um, is something called the uh, the Shrenwu Gate incident, which is this yes. kind of infamous palace coup in 626 that brings him to power. So can you talk a little bit about um, why are these particular, like why is it important that we know about these events and in what ways do these become important to the story that you're going to tell later on? Right. So, you know, um, one of the things um, that's, that's particular to the Tang is uh, the Tang dynasty um, has two founding emperors. Um, there's uh, his father, Tang Gaozu, um, who you know, is probably, you know, not credited enough within the historical narratives for, for actually overthrowing the sway. Um, and then there's Taizong. And um, what Taizong 
does essentially um, through manipulating the historical record is to displace his father, and, and it raises all sorts of interesting. And I, you know, I try not to, um, you know, I, I don't think I call it Oedipal at any point in this, but you know, it is, it is that sort of those fraught father-son relationships, um, and they take on these weird um, sexual. You know, you mentioned the harem incident, but that you know that brings up this weird sexual dimension. Um, and then there's the much more straightforward, just you know, like um, fratricidal slash um, uh, para, uh, parasitical sort of incident um, where he um, displaces his father, you know, um, on a symbolic level and kills his, uh, one of two of his brothers. Um, so um, the harem incident, I thought was just, just I mean, it's wonderful. Um, from point of <laughs> looking at it, I mean, it's terrible in many ways, right? That is, you know, he um, manages to take uh, or to, um, and, you know, again, much of the stuff that we're talking about is anecdotal, um, uh, you know, but, you know, what we have is anecdotes. Uh, so, uh, you know, he manages to sneak in um, a, a concubine from uh, Yangdi's harem into his father's, his father, you know, ends up, you know, um, committing a kind of act of symbolic, uh, you know, um, treachery, right, um, on this level. Um, and, you know, and Tai Zong's problems is that he, um, he's, he's, constantly trans well i'm you know the founding acts of power for him are ones of transgression um he transgresses uh the major bonds between emperor and subject between um father and son uh between brothers um and uh and this complicates uh his later attempts to present himself as a sage king um, and I, you know, and, and what he does to the poetry is to try to affiliate his reign to sort of sagely uh, models, and um, and one of the things that I noticed going through his his writings is that I think there's probably only one or two occasions in which he mentions Shun, you know, the uh, filial, the exemplar of of sagely filiality, um, and uh, he seems to actually avoid um, comparisons to Shun. Um, probably for these reasons. And just to backtrack a little bit, then, um, you know, the Shrenu Gate incident, I, I spent a lot more time um, going through that, but that is the palace coup. And, um, and, you know, uh, Taizong is not entirely, um, um, it, it's a complicated, um, question of, you know, who bears blame for this. It's from the later historical point of view, um, they, they don't exactly give him a pass on this. Um, they do sort of acknowledge that, um, that, you know, that, uh, his, uh, older brother who, um, uh, the crown prince was, uh, the one who was plotting to kill Taizong. Um, Taizong and, and his older brother had a kind of rivalry. Um, Taizong is presented as the more capable of, of the brothers. Um, but again, much of that has to do with the later historical record rather than what, with what may have actually happened during the period. Um, but in any case, uh, Taizong strikes first. He, he lays an ambush at Shrenu Gate. Um, he ends up killing his older brother um, and a younger brother. Um, and the group that around him, the group that sort of conspires with Taizong then, um, ends up becoming actually the, the leading officials um, in Taizong's reign. Um, Taizong um, goes or ha- sends one of his, um, his officials, uh, his um, subordinates, to announce the change of uh, sort of fortune to his father. And his father, you know, um, and, um, by 627 um, has uh, abdicated the throne. Um, Taizong starts his reign, um, and, uh, and his father just lives in a palace kind of grumpily for the rest of the... <laughs> I mean, you know, the father and Taizong never 
kind of good relationship after that. Um, but yeah, this comes back to haunt Taizong in, in various ways. Uh, that is, uh, uh, Taizong um, has to deal with this uh, originary act of violence, um, which really, um, you know, it brings to mind all the kinds of things that you see in René Girard, um, that is, you know, how societies are founded on these kinds of originary acts of violence. Um, and it comes brings to mind... Um, various tropes in Chinese political history about ideas of uh, a righteous overthrow of tyrants um, and the relationship between violence and sagely rule, you know, is always a complicated one. Um, you know, you're not actually supposed to, I mean, of course, it never happens in Chinese history that you actually have sagely secession, but um, you're not supposed to spill blood you know, if your cause is truly just, um, unfortunately, um, you know, all those examples come within the, um, sort of sagely antiquity. Um, but you know, but they gesture towards that, right. By, um, in the, uh, in actual Chinese history in, the, in imperial history, by performing these kinds of really elaborate acts of abdication, um, to kind of, um, try to show that, um, that there is this kind of vestige of a sagely transmission, um, that one can still, do that um, in in contemporary in history itself, um, and you know, and just you know, so while I'm thinking about it, I mean, the, uh, one of the things I am trying to sort of point to, right, that is, and I think um, Michael Pewitt also talks about this, is that you know there is this sort of period of sagely time, and then there's historical time, right, and then within historical time, um, everything becomes much more complicated. Um, the sages had things much more simply, I think, right, and and violence isn't a question, um, though I though. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, actually, violence is, I guess, comes up in different ways in saves the time. So, <laughs> no, 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 that's great. In fact, though, um, one of the really interesting things that you show here is that despite these kind of early, um, I don't want to call them missteps, but these sort of, um, these accounts that might contraindicate a kind of sagely access, uh, accession to the throne, um, despite this violence, Taizong's reign is does go on to be treated as a kind of political model throughout East Asia, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who treat him as a kind of ideal sovereign. So can you speak to that a little bit? How does that happen? Or what's going on there? Yeah, so, you know, I, you know, one of the things I think just very basically is that um, th there are so few um, um, decent sovereigns that you really have to sort of, um, you're grasping at, you know, the one or two that, that managed to, um, to, to do this. Um, of course, it's better to be a sovereign in the early years of the dynasty, right? Um, when you're setting things up, as opposed to when you're trying to sort of continue or transmit or, um, or to sort of um, create the kind of conditions for a dynasty to thrive. Um, well, Taizong um, in particular, uh, you know, there, there's some credit due to him, um, at least in his early years, uh, he was very conscious about um, some of the uh, uh, examples set up by uh, earlier rulers like Sui Yangdi, um, a number of the Southern Dynasty's rulers, um, Han Wudi. Um, he was, he, he was um, someone who, you know, began as a military sort of figure, um, but, you know, has, it's, he, it's clear that he tried to surround himself with literary men, to educate himself, to become a literary figure, to embody those, both of those sort of, you know, aspects of one and Wu. Um, and, uh, at least in the earlier years, um, you know, what's often celebrated is, uh, his willingness to take criticisms from his ministers. Um, but then that plays itself out again in interesting ways, um, at least in the anecdotes. And again, you know, we're dealing with anecdotal literature and all the caveats that come with that. Um, 
uh, he there's there's certain sort of formulaic ways in which those narratives unfold, right? Um, Taizong um, will do something um, uh, that uh, will cause a minister then to reprimand him, and then Taizong will accept the criticism. And, you know, and that kind of dialectic is something that I, I was trying to trace through um, both in anecdotal sort of historiographic sources as well as in the poetry. Um, because um, for Taizong to show himself to be sagely or to show himself to be a good ruler, um, he has to first um, commit a, an error um, and he has to be willing to be corrected. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, you don't have sageliness unless you can, unless you can err in the, in the, in the first place um uh is you can't have virtue simply um without articulating the virtue um and so you know one of the things if you you know think about uh with uh taizong being someone who's interested in frugality for instance um or at least he's interested in the rhetoric frugality um you know he could have come across simply cheap right that is if he's if he's simply saying that you know i'm not interested in bodily pleasures um and you know and he doesn't commit any kind of sins or errors or transgressions um, and simply abstains, um, one would say that he was sexless or one would say that he was, um, you know, ascetic um, in that very uninteresting way. Um, but what he does is actually more interesting is that he actually goes and he will say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, you know, do X? And then his minister goes, oh, no, you can't do X. And Tyson's like, oh, you're right. Um, and so, you know, by, by foregrounding that act of transgression or that trespass or that error um, and then accepting criticism, he's able to actually demonstrate virtue, right? A, that scene of instruction sets up the ability for, or the moment for Taizong to then claim the act of virtue at the end, to say, I'll refrain from this. Right. And this actually gives us a, a really interesting um, example of a kind of phenomenon that's been occupying the attention of a lot of writers and scholars in various fields right now, and that is the use of history. Um, specifically the use of historical models to justify contemporary political figures or regimes uh, and in China, certainly, but also elsewhere. So I think this is a really interesting case um, to bring to that. Now, you mentioned um, sort of Taizong's situ situating himself with respect to previous rulers, and this actually brings us really nicely into the second chapter. In the second chapter, you move to examine Taizong's political writings and his political speeches to delve more deeply into the relationship between these kind of two uh, notions that you brought up earlier in our conversation and that um, really are highlighted in the book. And these are these notions of representation and sovereignty as really not also not separable things, but co-constitutive in mm -hmm. the case of Taizong and his work and, and um, his reign. Now, in a bunch of Taizong's statements, he thematizes sovereignty in a way that takes a form of a judgment of past emperors. Um, and this is an example of something we'll talk about sort of a little bit later in, in talking about his engagement with sort of history and the craft of history in his um, thematizing of his own sovereignty. But sort of in the works um, in, in this chapter, in particular that you talk about in which he's actually critiquing past emperors, what in particular is he critiquing um, as a way of, can you give us some examples of the kinds of things that he wants to disassociate himself from while um, constructing this representation of his own reign and himself as a sovereign? Right. So, I mean, and, you know, I, again, I come back at this, I think probably um, in different ways throughout the course of the book, but um, 
but you know, I, I, I can't remember if it's in this chapter or in a later chapter, but I, I post an opposition between two tropes that I found to be useful ways of thinking about sovereignty. And um, one is oxesis, which yes, is, that's in the, I was going to yeah. actually ask you about that right away. So sorry, go yeah. on, go on. Yeah. So amplification is one model in which the sovereign might represent, um, you know, himself. Um, and, you know, Qin Shi Huang is probably the best example of this, right? As an emperor, who has like limitless desires, limitless sort of, um, and the body of the emperor in that case becomes also this, you know, amplified limitless sort of, um, you know, um, Leviathan like thing. Um, and so, you know, I was reading through, um, uh, different uh sort of uh, i was reading through um uh the shiji and thinking about how chin Huang, you know is interested in representing himself you know through palaces through and you know in that very weird sort of story about where he tries to kill that leviathan you know off the coast um and ends up dying on that trip um uh, and then um on the other hand um, Eschesis, uh, which is the, the tropic um, move that I see Taizong making, which is about, um, you know, the acknowledgement of desire, but then the denial of that desire, right? That is, um, again, that double move um, or that dialectical sort of move. Um, so sort of acknowledging that I have these same desires, but I will refrain from doing it. Um, and so, you know, when Taizong's um, going through and, you know, talking about um, Qin Shi Huang or Han Wu Di, those are the two figures that he probably talks most about, um, that he's most concerned with. Um, because I think those are the two models um, of how how a um, a major dynasty um, you know uh, is would be conceptualized for for him you know thinking about um, the Tang dynasty you know he wouldn't have known that the Tang dynasty would have lasted for its long reign um, you know uh, it would have probably from the point of view of the people living in the early Tang um, it would have been another northern dynasty right just following like the Sui um, following the northern Zhou and um, and there was no necessary, you know, aspect to how the Tang Dynasty was set up that it would have lasted um, beyond those two reigns. You know, one of the things that um, I know that's often joked about, right, is that um, it really is getting past that second reign, right? The, the third reign, um, you know, if you have a good, strong ruler in the third reign, um, then you'll you'll last. Um, for the Tang Dynasty, they're lucky they had Wu Zetian. Um, you know, Gaozong wasn't going to do it, right? And so Wu Zetian um, is the one who sort of managed to bring the Tang Dynasty through. But, you know, for Taizong, at least... Um, uh, the issue there would have been how not to do what uh, Qin Shi Huang did, what Han Wu Di did. Um, and so that aspect of criticism, I think, is, you know, tacitly an acknowledgement of desire, right? That is, he, he sees within them, you know, that is this incredibly tempting model um, for exotic um, sort of emulation to sort of be that amplified, um, you know, ruler. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about Qin Shi Huang is um, when he designs his palace, um, he creates these walled passages so no one can know where he is, right? So that's the body, the single body of Qin Shi Huang um, actually becomes amplified into the entire palatial structure. Um, that is, he is the palace itself because he's everywhere in the palace and no one's allowed to know where he is. Um, um, and, you know, and then it works, and again, Qin Shi Huang is interesting from just theoretical points of view. Um, and um, uh, some of the uh, listeners may be familiar with uh, the very interesting book written by um, Brian Masumi and Kenneth Dean called First and Last Emperors. Um, and it's published by Autonomedia um, Press, this, you know, interesting theoretical outfit out in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, they're interested in Qin Shi Huang on the one hand, um, legalism. And then Ronald Reagan on the other, um, thinking about how bodies of tyrants work, right? Um, 
And, and so, um, you know, this, I, you know, I probably, this brings us to questions of, of corporeality, um, for Taizong, you know, because again, amplification or self-denial, um, these are tropes of the body, um, and how one regulates bodily desires. Exactly. And in fact, this is actually, um, I mean, two of the things in fact that came out of what you were um, just talking about, which is really fascinating, are two major themes that actually thread through the entire book, but that you wouldn't know are there from the title, right? But that are actually absolutely central. And these are the themes, on the one hand, of the body, of corporeality, which really emerges in so many ways for the rest of the book in each one of the chapters, and also the theme of locality. So sort of the, yes. the idea that um, the emperor's in the palace, but you don't know where he is. One of the really, um, I mean, sort of, so the body on the one hand, but also one of the other really important themes that comes out of this book is the importance of space and spatiality um, and movement. So everything right. from you know, Taizong positioning himself with respect to the, the North and the South to um, the rhetoric of roaming and the uh, sort of the imperial hunt and the space right. of the palace. Did you know going into the book manuscript that these would be two themes that you wanted to highlight or sort of how did these emerge for you as being central to what's what's happening here? Yeah, so the body theme actually I, I knew was going to be important. Um, my dissertation is actually titled "Denying Imperial Bodies." Ah, okay. And then, and then, you know, as I was sort of again, you know, not to belabor the transition from dissertation to book, but um, I actually took out a, a lot of that more theoretical sort of apparatus, you know, having sort of worked through it and trying to sort of integrate it more, more naturally into the book rather than sort of foregrounding it. Um, um, that material actually ended up dropping out to some extent. Um, but yeah, no. So I mean, I knew about the body. Um, I knew roaming was going to be an issue, um, movement, um, spatiality. I, I knew that was going to be an issue. Um, you know, um, uh, you know. It makes me think that uh, you know, with the title, uh, it, it's hard to try to think about how to you know come up with a title. And I think titles are hard for books, right? That is, you want to find something that it encapsulates it and it has to be general enough in some ways, right? To not pigeonhole the book as just being about some certain things, and then. Um, and then just, you know, on a purely aesthetic level, and this is, you know, really frivolous, um, I, I didn't want to do, you know, the titles now are like, you know, it's like, um, um, you know, whatever the um, metaphorical thing is, colon, and then like, <laughs> right. after that, um, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I wanted to do metaphor and then literal, right? Um, and so, I mean, but uh, the literal, metaphor and the literal aren't exactly, they don't exactly match, but, you know, I was, I was, Aiming for that anyway, um, but uh, but yeah no so um, you know bodies um, on the one hand yes I, I was really aware of that I, I've been reading through um, Kantorowitz um, you know the King's Two Bodies um, and I was reading through Agamben um, I was reading through uh, what else uh, Carl Schmidt um, you know these are all um, writers I mean they don't necessarily I mean Kantorowitz deals explicitly with the body um, you know Schmidt and Agamben don't necessarily but um, but I was thinking about you know again how um, uh, the figure of the ruler of the sovereign is constituted. Um, what are the problems in that relationship between ruler and the system that they inhabit? Um, and for, uh, for Agamben and Schmidt, it's very clear about uh, that there is a structure of exception, that the ruler is somehow outside of the structure that he at the same time embodies or represents. Um, and then Kantorowitz, you know, had this nice division between, or he works through that nice um, Renaissance division between the um, body natural and the body politic. And, and again, those are useful sort of tropes, um, you know, for trying to sort of think about um, what's going on um, here. And it's probably, I mean, you know, it's not fair to simply 
say that this is what's happening, you know, in medieval China, you know, medieval China has its own um, bodily tropes. Um, but at least there were sort of useful points of comparison um, for, for I, I think of these as kind of theoretical interventions, right? These moments where you can sort of use a theory without having to subscribe to the whole thing or claim that it represents the whole thing, but uh, as a moment of elucidation as opposed to um, some general, um, you know, larger schematization of, of what the argument should be. Now, after, in this chapter, um, you, you close with something that I won't ask you to um, speak specifically to, um, but as a way to just kind of signal this for listeners before we move on, the focus of this chapter, um, chapter two, is on Taizong's two major essays on rulership. So the golden mirror and the model for the emperor, one of which comes right at the beginning of his reign and one of which comes right, right at the end. And the discussion in um, in working through those two pieces um, get into the importance of the kind of theme of roaming and um, roaming in terms of physical roaming, but also of reading historical texts and also the importance of corporeality. Right. Now, these also come up as we move into the next chapters. Um, chapter three is uh, takes us from these writings into the, the realm of literature, into Taizong's reign, and really sets up what's going to be um, the kind of core focus for the rest of the book, which is looking at literary production and poetry um, in Tang Taizong's court. Um, now, one of the things that comes up in this chapter um, that I just want to ask you to speak a little bit to before we move on to the poetry in later chapters is um, sort of the ways that Taizong's positioning of himself with relation to North and South mm-hmm. in this context kind of helped him articulate his own position, his own positionality as a sovereign. So this kind of um, tension between the North and South may not be obvious to listeners who don't know um, about this period. And I'm not going to ask you to give, you (laughs) you don't need to give a history lesson here, but can you speak speak a little bit to um, sort of the ways that um, Taizong's development of his own literary style Kind of reflected his engagement with these northern and southern mm-hmm. cultural practices. Right. So Taizong's a northerner, um, and uh, in the Sui Dynasty before him, there were also northerners. Um, however, I mean, so the most probably the easiest way to sort of get into this issue is to think about the example of Sui Yangdi. Um, Sui Yangdi, the second emperor of the of the Sui Dynasty, um, was a northerner, um, but he was one who really loved southern culture, and um, and you know just to work through um, just very generalized sort of statements about North and South, you know, um, and, you know, these things get complicated um, by people who, you know, work more specifically on this. And again, I was for my purpose for the book was to just get through the generalization for how Taizong would have thought about it. Um, is that, you know, the Northerners, um, again, not being fully, um, you know, Han Chinese, they were still interested in um, affiliating themselves to a, Chinese uh, a claim towards a kind of a Chinese um, cultural identity, and and that was one that, for the most part, they performed through um, kind of an interest in, in Chinese classicism. Um, they made sort of classicist moves. They made arguments about um, certain classical texts, including the Zhou Li, um, the rituals of the Zhou, um, which is really a this sort of um, kind of imaginary um, sort of uh, description of uh, idealized Zhou government. Um, and in the South, on the other hand, um, there was, you know, this, the, the Southern dynasties was a wonderful period for uh, for Chinese poetry in particular. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, that Sui Yangdi found himself really 
fascinated by and really absorbed um, by is is um, Southern Dionysus poetic culture um, to the extent that when he was sent down south to govern um, the southern uh, capital of uh, Jiangdu or the southern major city of Jiangdu, he um, really um, surrounded himself with Southern literary men. Um, he and again there was kind of this cultural cachet in Southern literary learning. Um, it's, it's it was elegant. It was um, it was sophisticated. Um, unlike the North, um, which was seen as kind of you know kind of a um, much more, um, not pedantic, but, um, again, you know, think of classicism versus literature, you know, it was, it wasn't, didn't have that kind of cachet, the sort of cultural capital that the self had. Um, and so, uh, Tai Zong, um, you know, from his point of view, um, he was clearly interested in Southern, um, literary, um, culture. Um, he could never quite come out and say it. Um, and so, um, you know, from, again, if one thinks about North and South as, as sort of different kind of cultural spaces, um, for Taizong as a figure that should unify the empire, um, he wanted to sort of bring those two parts together. For Sui Yangdi, um, you know, one way of thinking about his failure is that he fell in love with the South and couldn't find a way to sort of unify the culture. Um, he became, you know, as at least from the culture point of view, um, a Southerner. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, what's, what sort of complicates all of this um, is that um, the North and the South, um, for Sui and for Taizong, um, become, you know, the North is, for Sui at least, is where um, his dynasty really comes to its end in his campaigns against Korea. Um, and again, this brings up the issue of roaming, um, to come back to that. Um, one thing that happens when you go North, if if you're in the South and you and you go on excursions in the South, that's roaming, that's yo. Um, but if you go North, um, you don't go on excursions. Of course, no one would go on an excursion to the North. It's not as, you know, as sort of pleasant, um, but you go on expeditions. And so the North is marked by this kind of a militaristic or militarized terrain um, where the South is marked as a um, kind of a, a fleshly, sensual space um, where literature takes place. Um, and the kinds of, movements, spatial sort of experiences of North and South, um, at least in the rhetoric that we find in uh, both Sui Yangdi and Taizong, are marked by that kind of, um, that kind of uh, 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 sort of um, terminological difference. Um, again, Zheng for expeditions in the North and then Yo for um, excursions in the South. This is actually really interesting, and this this perfectly gets us into the later chapters, um, because one of the things that happens as we move to chapter four and five um, and six is that we're looking in particular at forms of poetry and poetic forms, um, both that are produced by Taizong, that are sort of, uh, that he's genealogically kind of relating himself to, and that are also produced at the court around him. One of the really interesting themes that comes up again and again as something that's thematized in both um, the kind of imperial poetry that you look at at chapter four, in the court poetry that um, we look at in chapter five, and also in the the rhapsodic poetry of chapter six, and you know, in, in some ways also in the um, poetry about the imperial capital and the palaces of chapter seven is this tension between this kind of sensuality and corporeal pleasure and leisure on the one hand and kind of the um, the ascesis, right, the, the discipline, the denial, responsibility on the other and the way that these, or that a kind of idea of sovereignty 
for Taizong emerges out of this tension. So can you um, speak a little bit to that, to the importance in um, some of this poetry? And you can choose, you know, any of these genres that, that uh, you're most inspired to talk about, the, the imperial poetry, the court poetry, the rhapsodies, um, or the sort of the, the poems about the imperial capital, and the ways in which um, leisure and pleasure uh, becomes important to uh, what's happening here. Yeah, so you know, um, leisure is interesting as a as a problem for sovereigns, right? Because sovereigns are not supposed to have leisure; they're supposed to actually be completely productive without reserve. Um, that is the idealized sovereign, um, and. Um, but there are sanctioned spaces for leisure, right? And so if, you know, within the Analects, um, you know, Confucius will talk about in my leisure, I, I go roaming. And again, roaming comes up. But roaming, you know, as a metaphor for reading or for self-cultivation, as opposed to roaming as an actual physical um, experience of traveling through space. Um, and, you know, Taizong, you know, is trying to sort of negotiate between those two models. Uh, on the one hand, um, emperors are figures that could have endless leisure, right? That is, um, if they were to devote themselves to the pursuit of um, bodily pleasures, um, as certain emperors like Chen Hoju do, the last emperor of the Chen dynasty, um, you know, he's a figure that has no um, relationship to governance or sovereignty in, in the sort of the actual political sense, right? He's a, he's a figure who takes his role um, and um, transforms it into one of literary um, enjoyment. Uh, for Taizong, uh, uh, you know, we go through um, some of his, uh, say, you know, I kind of section off some of his poems as, um, say, courtly, um, as a, um, well, let me actually complicate it a little bit. I section, I, in the chapter I have on um, court poetry, um, I talk in the first part about Taizong's uh, Yongwu poems, poems on things, and then I counterpose that to a, a reading of um one banquet topic, which was on his triumph over Shredju, um, one of the early rebels at the beginning of the um, Tang uprising. Um, and, and, and again, those are court poems too. Um, they're poems that take place in the court or, you know, written by Taizong and his courtiers. Um, but it's not frivolous. Um, they're, they're poems that, um, you know, move within that sort of historical sort of mode of, of poetic significance. Um, and, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, um, what I do in chapter three and to some extent in four um, is I'm, I'm trying to lay out um, at least how Taizong would have conceived of the relationship between literature and the state. Um, and he's concerned, you know, in the, in the, in the basic level of, um, of writing and of creating a model for literary significance. Um, and the problem with literature, of course, is that literature is always more, it's always surplus. Um, literature never does what you want it to do. Um, it always goes off and, you know, and there's pleasure in it. Um, and if you want literature to be moral, which Taizong sort of wants, but, you know, I don't feel like, you know, you know, it's clear that his heart's not entirely in it. Um, but it can't be pleasure that goes so far beyond, uh, the moral confines so that you know, it becomes a literature of pure pleasure. And, you know, again, going back to Sui Yangdi, um, that's what we see in a number of Sui Yangdi's poems, right, is a, a, a kind of a poetry where the writer forgets that he's a sovereign um, and thinks of himself as a poet. And, um, and again, that's that negotiation between pleasure and duty that I think that Taizong is constantly aware of. Um, but, Pleasure is absorptive. Um, you get absorbed in pleasure, um, and you know, and this is an old 
problem within Chinese literature that goes back to the writing of the Da Fu, the um, the great rhapsodies in the Han Dynasty, is that you know with such a, a kind of a um, encyclopedic articulation of the possible pleasures of the Son of Heaven, um, you know how can you then you know sort of wrap everything up with this kind of nice little moral moment where the ruler realizes his mistake and becomes a perfect ruler and opens up park to all his subjects so everyone can enjoy and use it. Um, the long section of the, the, the great majority of these poems um, that try to negotiate between, you know, imperial pleasure and imperial duty, um, really the, the weight, the gravitational center is on imperial pleasure. And the long sections of the descriptions of the lush palaces or the lush parks um, make it hard to then come back from that brink, um, and then reinscribe a kind of imperial sense of ascesis. Um, but for Taizong, um, you know, I, what I think he's doing and what I think is interesting about his poetry is that he sees the necessity actually of making that, that statement of desire. Um, and that act of absorption for him, um, when he's going through and talking about um, the kind of pleasures that he would like to have or the kind of pleasure that he's experiencing, um, are necessary for that last part, which normally seems just tacked on in someone like Sima Shangru um, at the end of the, um, the Shangling Fu. Um, but for Tai Zong, that ending, because he uses that same structure over and over again in his poetry, the ending where he comes back and says, but I will not do these things is actually, um, it's, 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 it feels somehow more like the proper balance that, um, that he's working through desire in order so he can then, um, reinscribe duty. Um, but just to go back then to the, um, to the, uh, question of court poetry, um, you know, that, that chapter, um, so I have a section on Yongwu uh, Shi, um, poetry on things and, that's the most, not frivolous, but it's the no, most insignificant kind of poetry. And it's a poetry purely of occasion. Um, it's there simply to praise the host, often at a banquet or a public kind of gathering. Um, and um, and there is politics or sociality involved in that, of course, because you are speaking to a patron or to a lord. Um, but uh, you're really reducing the poem to a thing. The poem on on the thing becomes a poem of things. Um, it's really a poetry that does nothing but gesture um, to you know the wit and the and the sort of um, the kind of um, uh, moment of the poem. Um, it doesn't go any to anything more sort of morally significant um, beyond that. And um, and in Taizong, a lot of his um, courtly poetry are these kinds of yong poetry on things. They're not really um, very significant poems. Um, yet, um, in a number of them, you know, he's, he's trying to perform that Southern Dynasty's identity to be able to show that literary facility with, with um, that kind of um, cultural learning. Um, and then when we move to then the, um, this long set of poems that I translate on um, the uh, Shredger Uprising, um, He's uh, again writing within a uh, sort of a courtly vein. It's all court poetry, um, but here he's actually transformed it into huaigu, into some of this um, very um, historically um, significant and personally significant poetry. On on, a, on again, huaigu is always um, poetry on a space, a particular space. Um, and he's remembering when he crushed the uh, rebellion. And that becomes um, this kind of way of taking a, a courtly genre, um, one in which, you know, we have an occasion in which you have one person 
introducing a topic and a bunch of courtiers then responding and writing matching poems in return and making it morally serious um, about sort of dynastic founding. I think that's a really nice moment in the book, um, one of many moments in which you're also kind of incidentally um, or in, in some ways explicitly um, also sort of giving us the tools to think more creatively about the way authorship of some of these poems might be conceived, right? And especially in the case when you have this kind of group of court poems, um, this is one example of many where the, the issue of how we think about the relationship between the producer and the object um, is actually really interestingly challenged. And also this comes up again elsewhere in the book, I think earlier in the book, uh, when you are mentioning the kind of um, the imper- the genre of or the set of not just um, in the case of Taizong but also in others um, imperially produced poems right what it, what it means to say that an emperor um, has produced or written a poem we have lots of you know Qianlong authored poems and I think that's again a moment in which the importance of corporeality kind of comes up because you show really interestingly the importance of being able to show that um, Taizong composed something in his own hand so again. It's the body of the sovereign, and here it's sort of creating a kind of authorship. Okay, yeah. so, <laughs> um, so so many interesting things going on here. What what I want to bring us to is a way of kind of um, bringing us to the end of the book before we wrap up. Is to um, what I want to do is kind of take off on something that you were just talking about just a little bit earlier, and that's the importance of pleasure and the really important point that you're making in the book, and that you just I think articulated really beautifully in your discussion, which is that it's the important thing here is not the absence of a kind of sensual satisfaction or the absence of pleasure, but rather um, Taizong actively negating or actively refusing to engage in that, right? So you need the, the sort of possibility there. You need, he needs to raise that possibility in order to make the move that's actually going to be the, the powerful move in the narration of um, his himself as a sovereign, which is the refusal or the, the negation. And that comes up um, in both of the last, uh, the last body chapters, six and seven. In six, where you're talking about um, Taizong's rhapsodies on uh, the his rhapsody in particular on the Daming Palace, right? And which is interesting because he ultimately negates the palace a couple of ways. One by um, sort of in the course of his rhapsody realizing how expensive it would be and sort of negating it that way, but also physically in life he he decided never to complete this palace, right? So, but there's another kind of negation that happens in the last chapter, and, and this is something that um, sort of the last thing about the body of the book that I'll uh, ask you if you could say a little bit about. And this is his negation of um, a certain kind of ritual sacrifice in the in the context of um, the imperial capital poems. So, can you say um, as a way to kind of bring this story? to um to its conclusion can you say a little bit about this and and just to kind of set this up a little bit this chapter um looks at uh poems 10 poems called the imperial capital poems and these are taizong's best known um works um amongst for for i guess um people who are familiar with taizong's work they um you mentioned that these stand as his most sort of realistic poetic statement on the idea of sovereignty, and it's a series of 10 poems that depicts a day of leisure from his imperial duties within the palace grounds. And this brings us into the issue of um, his negation of a certain kind of ritual practice. So can you talk about that this final negation 
in this final chapter and situate that within the larger themes of the book? Right. So um, we're talking about the, the ritual practice or the Feng and Shan sacrifices. Um, these are uh, really um, august, um, important uh Rituals that were, that I think, were only carried out a limited number of times in, in actually Chinese imperial history, um, but uh, they they actually probably are not antique. That is, they don't actually come from the period of sagely uh, rulership. Um, of course, I mean, what really comes from the period of sagely rulership? It's uh, these were these were um, sacrifices that probably were first created during the Qin, um, and uh, they were announcements to heaven um, and earth um, that uh, peace had been achieved. The Taiping had been achieved um, in the empire, and they take on this other resonance, though. Uh, Qin Shi Huang does carry them out. Um, they're talked about very interestingly um, in the Shiji. Um, it's actually uh, something that um, I don't remember to what extent I spent time on it in the book. Uh, I, I talked about more, probably more in the dissertation. Han Di also does these. Um, and uh, they, they carry this resonance of, of wanting to achieve immortality. That is to say, it's a prayer or a claim that because you have brought the empire to absolute peace, um, that, um, you know, then you can take the next step and sort of transcend this world. Um, at least for those two rulers, um, that was kind of the underlying um, uh, sort of desire there. Uh, Qin Shi Huang actually actively wanted to become um, a god in the flesh. Um, tai Dong um, was pressed to perform the Fang and Shan sacrifices. And these take place at Tai Shan, um, you know, um, in Shandong, um, one of the march mounts. Uh, he was re- uh, pressed to do these at least three times. Um, he refused um, the um, uh, the, uh, the sacrifices, um, uh, probably not entirely willingly. And so, you know, like when you see, uh, he writes these edicts, um, including one written in his own hand. And I think, again, you know, the fact that it's marked by, you know, written in his own hand, Taizong took a certain pride in, in being a literary emperor, someone who could actually compose his own edicts. Um, but, uh, but he refuses them. And, you know, it's, what's interesting isn't necessarily just the refusal, but rather the kind of the logic or the arguments that he makes in, in making these refusals that, you know, that because um, the empire is not entirely at peace because there are these wars waging, you know, and, and by the very end he was, you know, lost or stuck in a war on the Korean Peninsula um, and the expenditures were heavy and so, you know, he just didn't feel that he could actually carry them out um, and I want to read these edicts and, and this sort of set of ritual, um, sort of the set of ritual, this ritual desire on, on his part to sort of take his place, you know, among the great emperors um, to, to perform this sacrifice and um, Against then the uh, the Di Jingpian, the um, imperial capital poems, um, which don't at first glance have anything to do with the Feng Shan sacrifices, um, but rather, as you say, um, there's there's this representation of this one day in the imperial palace uh, of the emperor in his leisure, and again, leisure comes back into this sort of interesting way because whenever Taizong has leisure, right, he and he represents the leisure in writing poetry. Um, he always has to try to convert that leisure into some kind of um, imperial um, enlightenment, right? That is, it can't ever remain simply leisure. Um, he needs to, to sort of transform that back into duty. And so, um, so you know, there's this very interesting preface there. And the preface ends, you know, um, with this very odd statement that, you know, he's written this, these poems to um, transmit or communicate his elegant aims, ya zhi. Um, and this goes back to, long-standing issues in poetry about what poetry is supposed to do, which is identified with zhi, this idea of aims, and um, with this kind of um, sense of a moral um, aspect, a moral intentionality to the poem. 
And um, by by modifying that zhi with ya elegant, um, Tai Zong complicates it again. Um, you know, literature sort of contaminates things, right? Literature never is what you want it to be, and and um, Tai Zong can't always control, um, you know, where literature takes them. And so, you know, what's interesting again going through the poems is this sort of negotiation between um, literary pleasure um, and the kinds of things that literature will lead you to, um, including reproductions of Southern dynastic kind of uh, topoi, um, which he does in the course of this. He goes boating on the pond, um, you know, he. He ends up in the harem at one point, right? And these, um, there are all these things that, um, that, you know, again, he's supposed to um, not represent, which he finds himself representing, partly because of the logic of literature, um, where literature will take him, partly because um, I think he's interested in, um, again, that representation of desire. Um, and then at the very end, he's got this double-length poem um, where he concludes the entire day, where um, he says, you know, now I retired to the study and this is actually where, you know, I'm, I find my peace and, you know, in study then here I can then sort of inherit these echoes of, and he doesn't say feng and shan, um, which are the, um, he doesn't name the ritual um, and he doesn't name the mountains um, specifically, but he names them um, using ting and yun, um, these um, other alternative names for, um, for the mountains where the sacrifices were carried out. Um, but ones that have a sagely resonance as opposed to the imperial resonance. And, um, and one thing that I, I didn't mention before, but I think is one of the strands that goes through Taizong, um, is the problem of empire, of, um, of what it means to um, have inherited um, this kind of imperial model from Qin Shi Huang. And, uh, and the Feng Shan sacrifices, if they do come from Qin Shi Huang, um, or at least Qin Shi Huang is the first major figure to have performed them um, in historical memory, um, Taizong can't simply perform them. Um, he has to somehow negate the model that's posed by Qin Shi Huang and the imperial sort of all those problematic aspects of, of, um, of, of the imperial system um, in order to restore this kind of more sagely model. And... Uh, this he can only do in the space of poetry and in the act of negation. Um, if he were to perform the Feng and Shan, he would have been just like Han Wudi or Qin Shi Huang. Um, by refusing in the end, um, and then more interestingly, I think, not the refusal, but the re- poetic representation of this alternate sort of transmission of the Feng and Shan sacrifices as this kind of sagely ritual as opposed to an imperial ritual, um, he's able to then sidestep that really sort of um, compromising imperial legacy to put himself not with that pantheon of Jin Shi Huang Han Wu Di, but rather with um, the ones represented by Yao um, and, you know, not Shun necessarily, um, but certainly um, um, when um, that sort of Yu probably would be a better model for him, um, someone who engineers and sort of consolidates the empire. Um, but yeah, so no, the, um, it's, it's, uh, what I, what I was trying to argue in there is sort of to move from spatiality to ritual and ritual, um, you know, for, the way I was trying to set up that argument is about time. Um, you know, that as rituals are moments in which something is founded, in which a dynasty is created, um, in which something is announced. Um, ritual is the moment that marks epics um, in history. And, uh, and Tai Zong's attempt is to, I think, convert historical time into sagely time um, through this kind of rewriting or re-inscription um, of the Feng and Shan into something else. Well, Jack, thank you so much um, to sort of, we've taken up a lot of your time and I'd like to let you at least get something for lunch um, relatively soon. Um, we've talked about a lot of the book, but there's so much in the book from 
um, translations of a ton of primary sources to a lot of discussions that we didn't have time to talk about. It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about or we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners, uh, perhaps especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book? Um, well, I think the one thing that I've been thinking about a little bit in, in sort of revisiting the book in preparation for this interview uh, was uh, the kind of methodology I use um, in a number of the chapters. I, I sort of take a genealogical approach, and I was very conscious of doing so, thinking partly because of, I think, how Taizong is actually making his arguments in the poems um, by using allusions. Um, and, you know, a lot of if, and, you know, readers go through it and see... A lot of the pages are taken up by footnotes, um, and it's because Taizong, um, probably in an attempt to demonstrate his learning, um, but probably because he's trying to, I think, create a genealogy of sageliness. Um, uh, he's tying himself to earlier moments in literature and in history and in, 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 um, um, uh, in philosophy as well. Um, and uh, the, uh, so the genealogical model that I think that Taizong, um, Taizong would probably, I, the way that I discuss Taizong's move is to think of the, this as a kind of a hermeneutical consciousness, right? That is, when he looks through, across the landscape, what he sees are earlier traces of the past, and he's able to read them back into the poetry. Um, and so for me then, um, to sort of read Taizong, um, I felt that I needed to sort of show that genealogy, um, that sort of those lines of affiliation that he's trying to sort of create to the past, and they all converge in, in Taizong himself, right? That is, he then becomes the moment in history where all of this past um, sort of comes together. You know, and it's funny now, looking um, sort of at the kind of projects that I, I've been looking at now with Shisho Shinyu and with network analysis, you know, genealogy is one very rigid model for thinking about um, how relationships are developed. Um, and it's probably the right model for Taizong, but um, I've been thinking a lot more, and as you know, about sort of rhizomes as opposed to trees. And, you know, genealogy is a tree. Um, and what comes down to the reverse tree for Taizong because it's not, it's all the branches actually are the, the path that feed into the one trunk, which would be Taizong. Um, and, uh, and so I, you know, I, I, my, my current sort of thinking has really been about, um, much about complexity and randomness and thinking about how, um, actually instead of a hermeneutical model, one which we can read and think that we see the past and how the past is structured and, and relates to us, um, fields in which, uh, we actually don't know the relationships beforehand. Um, and so, you know, I just thought the funny irony that I, I've been sort of ranting about the problems of trees recently, and and everything I did in the Tyson book is really a tree structure. <laughs> this is, and, and this actually brings us to um, really nicely to what my final question to you was going to be, which is about sort of what you're working on now. So you just very briefly mentioned um, work on the Shushu Shinyu and um, networks and stuff. Do you want to say a little bit more about that, or? Yeah, uh, so I've got a couple of projects, I guess. Um, the Shisho Shinya project is one that um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure again how to structure. I always have trouble trying to imagine the structure. I know I know what I need to do, but I, I don't know how it's going to come out. Um, and that one, you know, is uh, has involved network analysis. It's involved some data visualization. Um, we've we've uh, working with some of my colleagues here. We've um, created a network graph of all the figures and how they relate to one another in the Shisho Shinya. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Um, the next step of that, we're we're actually working on topic modeling. We're gonna we have the text of Shishoshinu. We're trying to get um, the program to actually um, accept Unicode Chinese and not treat it and try to convert it into letters, um, which right now it is. Um, but uh, but if we can then sort of see how actually what words. Um, co-occur, um, what topics, um, you know, so there are 36 
um, topics in the Shisha Shinya, 36 chapters. It's a structured text. Um, if we were to assign 36 topics that we don't know beforehand, just to tell the program to say, okay, take all of the words of Shisha Shinya and then assign them into 36 chapters, which, you know, the chapters then would be um, determined by the logic of what words co-occur with one another in close relationships, um, you know, create 36 topics of your own. Um, you know, interesting to see um, what 36 topics actually come out of the Shisha Shinya, if it would look anything like the, um, the structure that the text currently has. Um, so, you know, again, randomness is something I'm interested in right now, um, complexity, um, and again, not tree structures, but that's one thing. The other thing is about ghost poetry. I mean, that's, I'm not sure um, with how that's going to go. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about a very small project of ghosts and, and the ghosts that write poetry and the poetry that we have. And we have a nice body of ghost poetry from um, um, both the um, early medieval period and the Tang dynasty. And there's much more later on, but I'll stop at the Tang. Um, but I want to think about how ghost poetry informs our notions of literary history, um, what it means for authorship, for anthologies, um, for classification. Um, and so, I mean, this seems like it might be a small book, but actually, the more I think about it, I think it might be worrisomely large. And so um, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure and best of luck with your next projects. Thank you, Carla, for taking the time to talk. And uh, yeah, I, thanks so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.